Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Unauthorized Disclosure Podcast. I'm one of the show's hosts, Kevin Gastola, and I'm joined by the show's other host, Rania Kellick. Hello, Rania. Hey, Kevin. And we're very pleased uh, to be joined by Fabio Andres Diaz Pabon, who is a Colombian. He is a research associate for the Department of Political and International Studies at Rhodes University in South Africa. Uh, he's speaking to us from South Africa, and um, he's a contributor to Warscapes uh, and wrote a piece which we'll be discussing. Uh, but for those of you who would like to find the piece uh, later on, it is titled Uncertainty, Peace Agreements, and Public Participation in Colombia. And so we're going to be talking to Fabio about uh, what happened with the Colombia peace deal this past week. And of course it failed. Uh, it was uh, by a very slim margin defeated in Colombia. So thank you for joining us, Fabio. Uh, and so let, let's uh, begin by asking you um, to just break down um, what your assessment is of what happened with the peace deal and why it did, in fact, uh, fail by this, this small margin. Well, I mean, what we can say is that so far the agreements are frozen, not totally failed. What happened is like a big share of the population rejected the deals. Now the question is to understand who rejected the deals and why they did reject the deals, you know? So the first thing that one should make clear is that most of the people that voted for no is not that they want war, it's that they were afraid of the uncertainty that this was bringing, you know? When you're in a society where, where you have been like 60 years with a conflict, the possibilities of peace, as, as, as crazy as it might sound, is uncertain. It's like a, like a leap of faith, you know, and you don't know where it's lying ahead. So I think there's like, from a big segment of the population, there was a lot of fear. I think there's also like a couple of segments within the political establishment who were opposing the agreements. And in fact, uh, yesterday, the, the campaign manager for the party who was opposing these deals recognized that they were like, uh, using advertisements and messages that were misleading and they were containing lies, in fact. So, I mean, there was like a lot of misinformation. I think we're in a society when we are dealing with a lot of information and a lot of data, but not necessarily that means you, you will receive accurate information. So in a lot of pictures and posts in Facebook, social media, and so on, People were receiving messages that Colombia was going to become a like sort of like a new Stalinist regime. Uh, families were going to be abolished. Uh, people was going to lose their land. Uh, elders were going to lose their pensions, and so on and so forth. So a lot of lies were thrown out there by a lot of political actors, and most of the people who voted no were known for the fear, but not because they don't really want peace. In general, like I mean, when you speak with Colombians from either side from the political specter, they want the best for the country. It's just like the, the, the campaign was really successful, bringing fears, and this kind of like politics of, I'll get a better deal for you, that is what happened with the Brexit and might happen with the U.S., you know? And so as I understand, um, the, uh, the right-wing, um, uh, Alvaro Uribe, is that correct, was able to make this uh, about the FARC and not just about coming to a peace agreement between the government and um, these rebel groups that have been in this conflict for a long time. Yes, that's right. I mean, Uribe has been like a quite a divisive actor in the Colombian politics. 
However, and in spite of coming from the right wing, he's quite popular for a lot of Colombians. Uh, it is quite interesting because one could argue that like, he could be seen by a lot of Colombians as a moral leader, and like as a representative of what, what is the country, you know? But to, to say that, one needs to understand when he really came to power. When he came into power in Colombia, was after a failed agreement and a failed peace process with the FARC in the late 90s. Well, at that time, the FARC leadership wasn't uh, strong enough and didn't have the vision to see the country beyond a war. At that time, the FARC were also pushing for war. So most of this backlash from like Colombian citizens is because uh, Uribe is saying like this is bad for the country, and he was the country who like faced the guerrillas when they were like just going for war at that time. But also because, I mean, of the trauma. I mean, this process should see, be seen as a trauma and sort of like as a broken relationship between the guerrillas and the government. The guerrillas in the late 80s, they tried to do a peace process and tried to have a political party uh, called the Union Patriotica. From that party, 3,000 cadres were killed, assassinated, you know? So, I mean, there was mistrust from the FARC at the end of the 80s. Then uh, at the end of the 90s, but the FARC was being really strong and taking over like military positions in different countries, in different parts of the country, and military bases. When they came into a peace process, they came with this sort of military arrogance when they came to there. They didn't want to come to peace. They just wanted to reassert their power. So some people, they say like they, 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 they won the tactics, but, but they lost the strategy to be able to force a peace deal at that time. And now it's kind of like, like, kind of like the pendulum of history now goes pretty much in the middle. Uh, but when you have an agreement, then you have a population who rejects that because of the trauma what the FARC did and because of the fear-mongering campaign that has been going into the country. That has been quite strong and quite successful, you know? I mean, you just need like a tweet, a picture, a Facebook post to bring like a lot of bad uh, messages and like a lot of fear into a population. And to clean that is really, it's really tricky because people seem to assume now that what you find in social media is information of sorts. You mentioned the fear-mongering campaign. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Well, I mean, like, there were, like, I mean, like it's, it is quite interesting because just yesterday, uh, as I mentioned before, the, the campaign manager for the No campaign from the party that is led by Uribe, he recognized that they were like embracing a fear-mongering campaign, pretty much explicitly, and they just like tried to mislead the people. And they recognized that they again, like they twisted information here and there, and they presented campaigns. For example, uh, as I mentioned before, that like elders will lose some part of their pension money, uh, families will have problems like maintaining their families because there's some kind of like, hidden gay agenda. Sounds crazy, but that what happened in the country. Uh, and saying the country was going to become something that in Colombia is known as Castro-Chavismo. So it's sort of like a Frankenstein political system that mixes the Cuban system and the Venezuelan system. And like everyone thinks in that side, when they proposed those ideas, that somehow after signing a peace agreement with the FARC, the country is going to turn communist. You know, and like not communist, like a social democratic communist, but actually like a Franken-Stalinist communist of sorts. I know that in your piece you explored uh, multiple possible uh, futures for Colombia. What do you uh, see uh, happening? It does seem like both sides, the FARC and the government, do not want this peace deal to fall away and, and, and just to completely dissolve. 
Yes, that's right. I mean, both actors seem to have like shown some commitment after after the results of last Sunday with the uh, plebiscite. Uh, both of them quite, quite, came quite fast uh, to the public opinion and said like the, the ceasefire is holding. So that means no more shooting is happening again. Like so, I mean, we're still saving lives. Uh, just so uh, you're aware, we lost you for just a moment there. So. Uh, you cut out. Um, if there's anything you wanted to re-emphasize, you were just talking at the, the last point you were making. The, the spoilers, I mean, like in general, in every peace deal, you will find spoilers coming from some of the groups. Something that happens with the FARC is the FARC is a, a vertical organization. So the likelihood of having spoilers is going to be less. They're going to be them, but they're not going to be that big. The challenge is with these groups that are still not part of the peace process and are not the FARC or the government. So then you have the other guerrilla, for example, the ELN is a guerrilla that is still going between 1,000 and 2,000 soldiers. And then you have the paramilitary forces and you have the drug lords. So you still have some guys there that can like create harm and havoc and take advantage of the lack of presence by the FARC in some parts of the country. So the tricky thing is, like, what shall one do in those cases? Ignore those actors or try to bring those as well into the negotiation table and make, like, a, a big social compact that includes them as well? Well, what about non-governmental organizations or even uh, media outlets in Colombia that maybe felt the FARC was going to be uh, getting away with crimes or previous acts. Uh, did that play, in, in your mind, do you think that played a considerable role in what happened with the vote? It, it, it is quite an ironic thing to observe, for example, that uh, uh, the, the, the right-wingers were actually using documents from Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch to say uh, victims of the conflict were not going to get justice. And that actually supported their arguments to say like that women shouldn't be supported now because there was not going to be justice for the victims. It's quite an irony, you know? So, for example, uh, Jose Miguel Vivanco, who is the leader of the Human Rights Watch, if I'm right, uh, he was invited to come to the signing of the peace deal, and he didn't attend to it. Clearly, I mean, from a, from a human rights perspective, Colombia will have a transitional justice mechanism. That is not perfect justice. That is justice to bring a country from war to peace. Uh, but, I mean, that was used by several of the opposition political parties to the, to the agreements to say this guy is not supporting it. So why should we vote for yes? That's one side. That's the side of the, the international side, as an example. But, for example, from the national side, it is quite remarkable to see the strength of these people and these organizations in the ground, small organizations, who don't have the resources, who are in the middle of the crossfire. And as soon as people say in the, in the, in the voting, they would go for no. These people say, like, you know what? We'll start to implement agreements by ourselves. You don't want peace. We want peace. So I think, like, you have those two tensions in that process, you know? So finally, we, we could reach, like, a point, like, where some inclusion would help. Uh, but always, I mean, like, it's a diverse country. I mean, it's 50 million people. It's, uh, it's the diversity of the country is, like, hard to describe. So I think, like, getting everyone into one agreement is... It can be complicated to make an agreement that speaks to everyone. 
And I think that's why the writing of the agreements is more generic, because it should be able to adapt to the different constituencies in the different provinces. The conflict does not manifest itself in the same way in every city in the country. It goes in different ways. In some areas, it's related with the uh, mining. In some areas, it's related with drug trafficking. In some areas, it's related with oil. In some areas, it's related with some sort of like a pseudo-taxation by rebel, uh, illegal, uh, parastatal organizations, so, and so on. And then one last question I we have for you uh, is uh, the president, uh, Juan Manuel Santos got the Nobel Peace Prize, um, and I would like to know what you think of this development. Well, I, I would say two things. Uh, some, some Colombians were saying, like, you know what? Uh, Garcia Marquez is, a, is the Nobel Peace Prize that we have, right? And he was famous for creating or being a representative of what is magical realism. These realities that look so crazy and unreal that are hard to describe. Uh, Garcia Marquez used to refer to this as actually like he wasn't like creating anything. He was just doing a chronicle of what he was living, you know? And then you have this country that in the same week rejects a peace deal and gets a Nobel Prize. Well, that's an example that Colombia, in fact, is like, can be in fact an example of magical realism. And I think, like, the, the Nobel Peace Prize, when you see the, the statement, it is quite clear that they are supporting the process. And they're giving, actually, a lot of political capital to the president to move the peace process now. Because what some of the opponents to the, to the agreements were doing uh, is what they were trying to take time with this process. Next year we have a, a Congress and Senate elections, so people was trying to play that card with the peace process, so just stretch it enough so you can like, get some political capital out of it. But now, like, Santos has this huge political capital brought internationally, not nationally, that's quite interesting to think of, that will give him, like, a lot of leverage to deal with the opponents to the agreement so far. And, for example, just 10 or 20 minutes ago, a press release came from the negotiators in Havana, and they're saying, like, okay, we need to make a way forward, and we need to address these issues, and we will try to speak with everyone so we can achieve peace. I think this might be actually, like, an extra time uh, where everyone's getting, like, a lot of support from different constituencies, and hopefully peace will happen, not necessarily this year, but the process is going going in a solid way, I, I, I think so. And just to be clear, before we let you go, what is the status currently? Do for for people who aren't in Colombia, do hostilities continue? Do do people continue to um, attack each other, or has there been a suspension of this kind of activity for a while? No, I mean, like there has been like a, a suspension of like uh, combats for a while. I mean, everything started like since the peace process. Like there has been a de-escalation process that has been quite. Good in the sense that we have saved a lot of human lives in Colombia, guerrillas, soldiers, and, cit- in, and citizens alike. Uh, now, a couple of months before the final agreement was signed, there was a bilateral ceasefire. And, and after, that's why I said before that as soon as uh, the results came of last Sunday's election and the people said no, both the government and the guerrillas, they said we'll keep the ceasefire. So that's good because people is not suffering the consequences of war. So we're in a, in a way it's frozen. Now we just need to chop it out and just live a democracy that works. 
All right, Fabio, thank you for joining us. And, and again, for people who were listening to this interview, uh, you're a contributor to Warscapes, and you can read the piece that uh, you wrote called Uncertainty, Peace Agreements, and Public Participation in Colombia. You can find that at the warscapes.com website. So thanks, Fabio. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the discussion portion of the Unauthorized Disclosure podcast. Uh, I'm joined by Rania Kalik. Hello, Rania. Hello, Kevin. And uh, we're going to spend the rest of the episode talking about whatever the hell is going on between uh, these people who are so upset and infuriated by Max Blumenthal's pieces on Syria that were published at Alternet. So he published a couple features. Um, He published one on the Syria White Helmets, and then he published one on... uh, organization called the Syria Campaign. Uh, Rania, uh, just establish for people before we get too much into what's been going on with you and how people have come after you, just like explain to people what these pieces are about um, and what Max was was reporting on. So Max posted, Max wrote these very in-depth investigative articles on um, the, well, one, the first one was published on Monday and it was on this organization uh, called the Syria Campaign, uh, which is basically like a well-funded um, PR effort um, that was put together by this like PR group called Purpose that has been involved with sort of like other PR efforts around like clicktivism and stuff like that. Um, and and uh, And the whole idea of the Syria Campaign is to basically like, uh, push the public opinion towards the, the idea of, um, U.S. intervention in the form of a no-fly zone in Syria, uh, which would require an estimated, like, 70,000 U.S., um, troops, <laughs> and also likely a war with Russia and Syria, which we've talked about before, um, on the show. I don't need to get into all that, but, uh, that's the purpose of this group. It receives a lot, a good amount of funding from a, you know, what Max reveals, it's received, a, it receives a good amount of funding from, uh, like the Syrian exile billionaire in the UK who happens to be a big donor to David Cameron and support David Cameron's anti-refugee policies. Um, and, you know, Max like goes through very meticulously and, you know, he talks to people in the Syria campaign and then he goes and real and, and finds other information about where their funding's coming from. And he, re- and, and he also maps out the way the Syria campaign is actually the beh- like the behind, um, the entire basically PR effort around the white helmets this group of uh, rescuers in opposition health uh, territories mostly in the north of syria um that you probably you know anybody who's listening to the show has probably if you don't live under a rock seen the white helmets everywhere um they're all over like every single media outlet and all over your facebook feed um and it's not that they're not doing anything important. It's just, um, you know, they, they, the reason that they've received so much attention and been built, built up so big is because there's this huge PR firm that's working to make them big. And that's, you know, Max's second article goes into. Uh, it's also the fact that, you know, the USAID, um, the arm of the USAID that is behind, like, trying to provoke unrest in countries it doesn't like. Um, that, that arm of the USAID is what funds the white helmets to the tune of $23 million, which is a lot of money for a small rescue group. 
Um, and so that's like another thing he goes into and it's, there's no transparency around it. There's all kinds of other contractors involved who are um, involved behind, you know, pushing and, and, and inflating this group. Um, and a lot of them, um, have shake, you know, shady histories, um, being involved in like Haiti and, um, you know, being extremely corrupt, <laughs> And so Max like maps all this out. I really do encourage you to go read. It's a very factual report. Um, you know, and he, he really, he did his work. He worked on this for a while. And I think it's important because, you know, there's like, people seem to be confused or, or, or people seem to be conflating the idea of like, they seem to be conflating the idea of, of, of Max is like attacking rescue workers. And that's not what his report is about. It's about how they are, have been used as an effort by the U S and um, other interested parties to gin up support for intervention in the form of a no-fly zone. And I think that's important to understand. Um, There's also the fact, I mean, Max mentions this in his piece on the White Helmets as well, is that there is no transparency about where the funding is going. Like $23 million is a lot to give to um, a group of, of, a small group of rescuers, whether it's in Syria or anywhere else. There's no um, oversight of what's happening with that funding. Um, and there are videos, uh, that have surfaced online, um, showing some members of white helmets participating in atrocities, uh, with armed groups. Um, and one, one video, it's really disturbing. They basically like oversee an execution and then rush into like, um, like a summary execution by an illness for fighter. And then immediately like the white helmets rush in to like, to pick up, to clean up the mess. Um, and in other cases, you know, there's photos of, of them holding arms, of waving Nusra flags. And that's not to say that every single one of them is like a Nusra member or anything like that whatsoever. It's just clearly like, you know, there there is no oversight of this money. You don't know what's happening to it. Um, and so anyways, they, these are all things that I think need to be like discussed and understood because, um, you know, there is an effort. If you like, again, like the 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 media for the past month and a half probably has been nonstop, like, you know, ginning up. Like, it's like they are whipping up a frenzy about Syria in a way that, you know, enforces the idea that we should enforce regime change in Syria through a no-fly zone. And so that's really dangerous for a number of reasons, and we can get into that later. But the point is, is I think his, you know, what Max uncovered here is very, very important um, and I think it also speaks to um, the fact that, you know, remember, do you remember Coney 2012? Yes. Okay. So this is like a new and improved version of Coney 2012, where, like, you're able to make an idea of intervention go viral um, through social media. And, to, and like, really, it's like, a, it's really manipulative. Um, you're able to, like, manipulate people's use of online spaces to like make these ideas go viral. And that is what this company purpose it's behind the Syria campaign has managed to do in the white helmets is their best vehicle of doing that. And so I think it's really important to understand that not just for what's happening in Syria, but for the future, like for future conflicts. Um, because it really is stunning to see like how, how, how well um, the, you know, the sort of pro interventionist crowd has been able to um, adapt to the uh, changed environment of the way that we consume media, you know? So, and there's virtually no like questioning or challenging of these groups whatsoever. They're just taken at face value, everything, nothing they say, like anything, you know, the vast majority of journalists 
have been receiving their information from like networks attached to the Syria campaign because they're not on the ground in Syria. And so like neither are the people who work for the Syria campaign for that matter. So it's like we don't even know like when it comes to the information that they're that's being reported. It's like not, you know, it's like we don't it's the Syria campaign is driving a lot of it. Um, and so that's kind of disturbing as well. But anyway, so Max basically published these two pieces. I really encourage you to go read them at Alternate. Uh, but the point is, is, of course, there was a massive backlash, as you can imagine. Uh, and weirdly, the backlash came down not just on Max, but against me uh, and Ali Abunima and Ben Norton of Salon as another one <laughs> came after. And uh, more generally, like the electronic intifada has been... Um, has been severely like attacked. It's like a coordinated campaign of slander, uh, trying to say that we're all just like a bunch of Assadists who love dictators and love Putin, um, and you know love watching Syrians die or something. Uh, yeah. So I, I just want to read an example. Uh, but first, why don't we talk about the most um, disturbing uh, Max? has been getting phone calls from people who are uh, making threats over the phone, right? He actually spoke to a person and recorded this phone call with this, uh, this man who was um, you know, saying things like, motherfucker, I'm going to come and, and, and find you, and was um, very, very um, intimidating. Very, very clear that he was trying to intimidate Max. Yeah, so that was Idris Ahmed, um who is like this, some academic, um, I think he's in, I don't, I don't know if he's like in Scotland or, or where, but he's, um, he's somewhere there around that area. (laughs) And, uh, he's just like, he's a nasty character. He calls me a fascist airhead. Um, he calls everyone a fascist. And this guy is really like one of the shock troops for the, for the, like the pro intervention crowd where he's just like this misogynistic, like a bigoted bully who runs over. I mean, he just, he called Ali a snake, like a blow. He called Ali a bloated reptile, um, as well. Like, it's just, this is the, this is the kind of language these people use. And I don't, I mean, he's just like, he's, he's unhinged. Um, and on top of that, there's another guy named Oz Katerji. That's like, I don't even, I don't know if he's Lebanese or, or what. I know he's definitely British. Um, but he's also, I think, Middle Eastern as well. And he is another one of these shock troops who just, like, intimidates. He's, like, the bullying person who intimidates and harasses. And he actually, you know, came at me, uh, like, a month or so ago, basically giving me an ultimatum. If you and your friends don't change your rhetoric, we're, you know, we're going to continue this campaign against you. So this this campaign of, like, harassment, intimidation and bullying has been going on for a few months now. Uh, but it's just, it's peaked. It's gotten really, like, it, it just got really bad this week. And these are the people who are sort of, um, you know, the driving forces behind it. And they're just really, I mean, the way they talk to you, Oz, so Oz, um, he, I believe it was him who was messaging, sending before Max even published his article, he was receiving threatening messages. Um, and he actually shared them on Twitter. You you can go look at them. Uh, and, um, and so, yeah, like I, these people are, are huge bullies and they are, there's like a certain like group of them. They were the people who were behind, um, a couple of months ago, there was a, a like aid worker named Taryn, uh, Ter- what's her last name? Taryn. Is it Vivek? Yes. Taryn Vivek. And, um, she was basically doxxed by these people and they tried to paint her as some like Assadist who hates refugees, even though she was an aid worker, which and none of it was true. Um, 
and there was like a group of people who, you know, Oz and Idris were a part of it, and some other people. Um, I don't, I don't have to get into names. I think Charles Davis might have been another one, but there's, I mean, it, it's really shocking what they did to this girl. Like they, they doxxed her. They tried to claim she was like a UN employee, and then and and they used that as a way to like attack the UN. Um, trying because that's another thing that the Syria campaign has done. The Syria campaign was actually behind. Um, this like attack. I don't know if you remember. There was like this attack about a month ago on the UN, trying to portray the UN as somehow in bed with the Assad regime, simply for the fact that they were coordinating with the sovereign government of the country, like they do in any country in the world. What conflict or no conflict? That's how the UN operates. And because of that, because like they were coordinating relief efforts with the government in charge of the country, instead of instead of I guess instead of wanting to overthrow the government. Um, they were attacked as like Assad, as basically like Assad supporters by the Syria campaign, and then eventually by the Guardian, which picked up the Syria campaign's report. So, I mean, there's all this nasty stuff going on that, that kind of goes back to the Syria campaign, which is part of the reason it's important that Max wrote this expose. But the point is, is that this group of bullies—they're like, you know, they really. Um, you know, they harass and intimidate and they're effective at it. And they, I think to a larger degree, they're, they have effectively for the last several years been able to silence a lot of people on the issue of Syria. I'll be honest. I stayed the fuck away from the issue of Syria because for, you know, for, for a long time, it's like you can't say anything right. No matter what you say, unless you posture the right way, even if you're saying facts, uh, like you'll just be hoarded you know, deluged by people calling you all kinds of, you know, of various things from both sides. But I think it's more from the interventionist side, but it also comes from the other side too. But that said, um, I think that that a lot of people have maintained a level of silence on Syria because it's just so polarizing because these kinds of people will come after you. Well, so here's an example. Uh, Zahar Salul, who is with Sam's Global Response, which is a uh, Syrian American medical society, right? Right, Rania? Yeah, and it's like very pro-intervention. Um, yes, but it, it also does like they they go they come they they freely like tra- are able to somehow travel in and out of opposition areas. Um, but and they basically like help build clinics, and I mean they do good work. That that said, they're also you know agitate. They're also agitating for, um, for like what I mean, the people at least in are agitating for Western regime overthrow. And this guy, Zahar Salul, I would compare him to like a modern day Ahmed Shalabi of Iraq. Um, to you know, where he's like really, he's like allying himself with neocons to push, uh, for, um, for to push for like disastrous U.S. Uh, like, just like the U.S. should just like enforce regime change in Syria, regardless of the outcome and consequences, uh, for for both the U.S. and for the people of Syria. That's what this guy is pushing for. He's doing a very good job of it. Um, so his, his Twitter profile actually says he's based in Chicago, so maybe he'll end up trying to find me after we give Yeah, you better be careful. After we give him this attention. But I think what's remarkable and why I want to read this in, t- in its entirety is just that you'll hear him basically agitating and imploring Palestinians, Arab, and Muslim Americans to come after people like Max and Ali and you who are involved in this journalism. So here's how it goes. This was posted to Facebook. Um, And Zahir said, It is time for individuals and organizations in the American, Muslim, Arab, Jewish, and Palestinian communities who promoted and inflated Max Blumenthal and his friends to tell these bozos enough is enough. Max and friends like Ali Abunima and Rania Kalik are the fifth column 
who have been promoting war criminals, supporting the genocidal policies of Assad and Putin, promoting idiotic conspiracy arguments, disregarding the sacrifices of the Syrian people, and probably getting paid by Russian and Assad PR firms. Actually, that's one of my favorite parts of this. Probably getting paid, like, you don't even have to have any evidence for that. You can just throw it around there. Um, and didn't even bother to ask you or Ali or anyone if you were getting money before saying that. It's just, you know, maybe. Uh, so then, they are the equivalent of the propaganda machine of Hitler. How can they claim that they care about Palestinian children in besieged Gaza while they ignore the suffering of Syrian children in besieged Aleppo? What kind of person devoid of humanity are these bloggers? It would be shameful if they were invited to speak at conferences or treated with respect. After six years of genocide... Anyone with moral ambiguity about what is happening in Syria is a culprit of the crimes against humanity committed every day by Assad and sectarian militias against Syrian children. I invite honorable Palestinian, Arab, and Muslim Americans, and then he goes on to name people who I will not repeat, and others to uncover the ugly faces of these liars. That's, I mean, that's incitement. He's like inciting people, or he's demanding, I guess, people attack us. And for what? Like, again, first of all, Max wrote the articles, not me, not Ali. But that said, Max's articles are based in fact. And this is what happened. Is instead of, I mean, you don't have to agree with the articles, but instead of disagreeing with them, everybody, a lot of people just ended up attacking and name-calling because they don't have an argument. Like, that to me suggests that you don't have an argument. When your only argument is that you are Hitler, <laughs> as opposed to here is why, like, here's like, I dispute this fact in your piece. This is not, you know, like that, then that suggests to me that you don't have an argument. And so this is just a way to silence. Again, this is a way to silence people. This is so absurd. Um, I will say, like, I, you know, I don't think I've ever been called a, an Assadist, an Assad paid, an Assad and Putin paid fifth columnist, Hitler. That's like new. But I can't tell you, like, this week, how many times I've been called a Nazi and a fascist by these people. Like, it's, it's completely absurd. Um, there is not consensus like, that's one thing, that's another thing that really bothers me is there, people are acting as though there's some sort of consensus around the issue of Syria, and there's not. And when I say that, I mean, like, even among Arabs, there is not consensus around Syria. It is a very polarizing issue among Arabs, um, and, and, but, you know, it's not a, it's not like Palestine, where everybody, like, most, the vast majority of people, you know, are on, you know, understand, like, this is what needs to happen. And this is where, the, where, you know, this is where we're at. And it's not a clear-cut situation either. The Syrian rebels, the, the Syrian government has committed atrocities and continues to commit atrocities. And now with the backing of Russia, yes. Um, the Syrian rebels are also committing atrocities. And those, those, those people are, are being armed by us and being armed by Saudi Arabia and being armed by Qatar and Turkey. And they're allying with al-Qaeda. And they, every single day, we hear about, you know, we hear about East Aleppo. Constantly, 24 hours a day, you see like a new article all the time, a new video from AJ Plus about East Aleppo. I can't recall anything on West Aleppo. West Aleppo is held by the government. 1.5 million people live there, and they are subjected every single day to a torrent of, or like a, they're, they're showered every single day with missiles, with U.S. and Saudi and Qatari and Turkish supplied missiles from the rebels. Every single day, tens of people are killed in West Aleppo, and you don't hear about it. Children, like students, uh, every day. 
and you you hear none of this. I mean, to granted, the damage is not nearly as bad as airstrikes, but people are still dying. They're losing limbs. They're you know there are shortages. There are medical shortages because of U.S. and EU sanctions. Um, people are really struggling in the west side of Aleppo, and you don't hear about that at all because it's all just about the regime in Russia. Like, it's like a one-sided conflict, and this is not one-sided. And I think it's really disingenuous to portray it that way because what that means is that you're basically letting the U.S. and its allies off the hook for their contribution to this, 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 this god-awful, terrible, atrocious war. Uh, and there's one thing. I, I, I think you actually understand the issue uh, and can break this down and talk about the differences, but there's this little game that, people are playing with the no-fly zone and their advocacy for it. So one of the one thing that came up um, in the past week, and let's we're not going to talk about the VP, the vice presidential debate and stuff, but I'm just I know that during it uh, the idea of safe zones came up. So uh, the people with the Syria campaign actually want to make a distinction between a safe zone and a no-fly zone. Um, I guess, what do you think? Like, are, is there an actual difference or like, is it possible to be against a safe zone and for a no-fly zone? Or are, are both uh, going to invite war, like like a larger conflict between the U.S. and Russia? They're both going to invite a larger conflict between the U.S. and Russia. Because what that means, whether it's a no-fly zone or a safe zone, is you're supposed to be stopping bombs from falling. And in order to do that, you have to shoot down the planes that are dropping the bombs. And so... It doesn't matter whether that means a no, like the, this like no bomb zone. They've also come up with the idea of a no bomb zone where like you use basically like gunboats instead of um, U.S. aircraft to shoot down um, planes. But basically they want to they want to bomb and take out uh, Syrian military installations so that they can't take off. That's what that's a big part of it. So that's a year. That's an official. I mean, that's a, that's like a escalation of war on a country, Syria. Okay, and it's also let's remember like military installations like they don't exist in some weird like parallel universe where there's no civilians. Um, they often, you know, they often exist in areas that are populated by people, just like our own military bases exist in areas that are populated by people. So you're going to be killing people to do this. Right. So you take that out and then you also have Russia. And Russia is saying uh, they actually threat like the yesterday they they explicitly said the Russian uh, the Russians explicitly said if the U.S. shoots down or shoot or shoot you know if the U.S. attacks the Syrian military we will have no choice but to shoot back like that was their response so it is like de facto a war with Russia is what is what these people are advocating for and let's remember like Russia is a nuclear power um, and I don't know who in their right mind. Unfortunately, a lot of people who occupy like levels of power in this country seem to want a war with Russia. But I mean, for the rest of us, that's really bad news. And the Syria campaign doesn't care. They have like one goal and one goal only, and that is regime change in Syria. And, you know, it's everybody keeps saying for the last six years, everyone has said over and over again, the only way to solve this conflict is through a political solution. And it's, it hasn't worked. It hasn't worked uh, for a number of reasons. I mean, there's no side that's not to blame here. But the fact of the matter is that I do reserve a little bit more, you know, a little bit more anger at the side that, you know, my tax dollars are supporting, which is the U.S. And its policy has been to to arm and fund a fanatical extremist insurgency, basically arm and fund death squads in Syria. That's what it's done. 
That is what the U.S. has done, whether it puts it that way or not. That is what it's done. And it's empowered al-Qaeda uh, like it's never been before. And this is another aspect to all of this. So I was just telling you, Kevin, off air about uh, a new article in the L.A. Times that basically states based on um, – based on the, like, uh, and these intelligence officials are saying that al-Qaeda operatives in Syria, operatives in Syria are, are pl like, plotting attacks against the West. Now, that's not surprising, because it's al-Qaeda, and that's what they do, right? But al-Qaeda has actually, like, been strengthened because of the U.S., the dangerous game that the U.S. is playing in Syria, which is to le leverage jihadists against a regime it doesn't like. It's done it before, uh, most, you know, famously in Afghanistan, and that turned around and blew up in America's face in the form of 9-11 um, and other things before that. And not to mention the population that was end up, ended up being subject to al-Qaeda, you know, Taliban rule. Um, but on top of that, this is what, what was really stunning to me, is according to the report, al-Nusra, which is the al-Qaeda affiliate in Syria, al-Nusra has become al-Qaeda's largest formal affiliate in history. Like... Think about that. Al-Qaeda is stronger than it's ever been before because of U.S. policy in Syria. And, I mean, it comes also from, you know, it's also like an, um, it's also kind of the after effects, too, of U.S. policy in Iraq, which was what brought Al-Qaeda to the region in the first place. Uh, and now it's, you know, and, and then also the U.S. has sort of coddled Al-Qaeda, knowing, I mean, they're the armed rebels, knowing that they affiliate with Al-Qaeda and that a lot of U.S. weapons end up in Al-Qaeda's hands. But they don't care. I mean, it's just such a contradictory policy. You're, you know, so we're creating problems for us as, like, a country in the long run. Um, and then at the same time, you know, you can imagine what it might be like to live in <laughs> in the Middle East to live in places like Syria and Lebanon, where I have family and both, and to be like subject to like Al-Qaeda rule or be surrounded by Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda is not a friendly group. <laughs> they, they're not exactly the most democratic group, you know, around. And you're talking about areas, um, you're talking about a region, part of the region that is like very religiously diverse. And, you know, Al-Qaeda is forcing conversions in areas that it controls and sometimes kills minorities and, um, you know, and chases people out. They kidnap also like Al-Qaeda and other armed groups, both, because a lot of the armed groups have similar ideology as Al-Qaeda. I mean, I can't tell you how many Syrians I've spoken to whose family, like family members have been um, have been kidnapped when when uh, the rebels have taken over. They're kidnapped and then ransomed. And if and in some cases, the family, a lot of cases, the family can't afford to buy them back. Um, so that's happened to a number of friends of mine where, like, they don't know what happened to their families because they 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 don't have money. They couldn't afford to buy them back. Uh, and that that is that is what like that's what the U.S. and its allies have unleashed on Syria is groups like that. Okay, and so, so yeah, sorry, go ahead. So, so there are like two things I want to raise before we conclude this part of our show, uh, conclude the episode. Uh, so I've got this thing up uh, from Riyad Alarian, who's the co-editor of Mufta's. Israel, Palestine, uh, and Levant region pages. And uh, I just, one of the things that's striking, uh, the reason why I want to read what he had to write uh, against Max is because it seems like, and we've talked about identity politics on this show, um, he's using Max's identity um, against him, and it, it seems very, very uh, disturbing, and, and in fact, um, 
we wouldn't accept this. Uh, so he said, you must remember, Max, that you can never at any moment or under any virtual circumstance ever be anything more than an ally in the struggles of Arabs and Muslims, and even that designation now seems too much for you. By virtue of your white, secular, privileged identity, you will never be a mainstay of our causes, no matter how much you desire to. You are not Palestinian, Syrian, or Arab, and you never will be. We are the gatekeepers of our causes and narratives. We decide who stays in and who stays out. Evidently, you have, through this horrendous article of yours, decided to willingly show yourself out. Good riddance, I swear to God Almighty, and on the honor of Arab and Muslim liberation, when Palestine and Syria are finally free, your name will go completely unremembered. You will not have a place among us. I will sip tea on the shores of Jaffa, prostrate in the abode of Damascus, and take comfort in the knowledge of your absence. <laughs> Which is obnoxious, and and but also, like, the... You've had problems, too, with people coming after you um, and attacking your identity instead of addressing the argument that you're making. Yeah, I've had that happen a lot, uh, especially. And I I feel like, I mean, you know, some of it is because I'm not Muslim. Um, and I, I, mean, I mean, this is not by all people. It's just, there's, there's a certain segment of people that are very identitarian based in their thinking on Syria. Um, and I noticed also some Muslims who aren't even Arab, um, who feel as though they're, they somehow, because just out of virtue of being Muslim, Syria is like an issue that they, they get to have more like say over than maybe I would, even though I have relatives there, but I guess they're not Muslim. So, and then there was a, a another thing that happened. Uh, I mean, this is very, very minor in comparison to the stuff that we're talking about here, but it, it leads to uh, a point that I want to make. So, I had an exchange uh, a back and forth with Alex Gibney, who's a documentary filmmaker, um, and he had noticed uh, I, I th- this was like. It feels like eons ago, Rania. You are going back and forth with Eli Lake over <laughs> um, uh, Syria and uh, the rebels and stuff like that. And um, and I just jumped in to say something about what you guys were discussing. And Alex jumped on. And, and Alex has made some decently good films, um, like one uh, called Taxi to the Dark Side. Um, uh, but... Uh, I, uh, I I said something and, and he came back at me um, talking about regime change. Um, uh, oh, yeah, I had rejected regime change. Mm-hmm. And so he had said something to me along the lines of uh, uh, making it personal to me, you know, like suggesting something about me is, is how I felt it was being put to me uh, because I rejected regime change. And then I took issue with it. And, and he says, well, I do believe that if you don't support regime change, then you should actually be putting forward some kind of alternative. And um, I really have a problem with that. I think you would have a problem with that too. Like, it's not up to us to come up with a solution. The solution in in our minds is that things could get better if outside actors stopped making the conflict worse. Right. I agree with that. And also, yeah, I just, I think it's really arrogant of, um, of people here to think that they can dictate or impose a solution on Syria. Um, and I think it's really ignorant to think that anything can happen to better what's like to, to, to better the situation for Syria and without de-escalating the conflict. Um, and I, you know, and I think that those, but like, you know what I have to say, I think those are legitimate debates to be had. Those are the kind of debates that need to be had, but they're not, you can't, you know, there's no room to even discuss that. Like what I just said and what you just said, because it all just turns into this nasty personal character assassination. 
instead of, okay, let's talk about what's actually happening and what, you know, like, and how, you know, like, what's your position? What's my position? And, and argue, you know, argue it, argue it legitimately, you know, provide facts, have a debate, have a back and forth. Instead, it's this like identitarian bullshit and, you know, this like, like language policing and this like insane bullying and like everybody's Hitler. Like, it's like, you know, like I've just never seen such a ridiculous abuse of the word fascist as, as much as I have this week. <laughs> like, and, and, and honestly, it seems to have this very unusual common, uh, it has a lot in common with people who I would assume many of these uh, Palestinians, Arabs, and Muslim Americans would condemn. You know, like the people on the right wing who are just against all it, Muslims in general and do not differentiate or distinguish between demographics and cultures throughout the entire globe. Right. No, I mean, there's like a, yeah, exactly. Like there's like a, a stereo, I mean, there, there's like a stereotyping here where like anybody who doesn't support regime change is just like lumped into some group that like loves dictators and it's fascist. So, uh, I, I suppose just cause we do do the show, um, and, and have this as a platform and we'll, we're going to do it, you know, we're going to do a few more shows before the year is over. We're going to do some more shows in the spring, um, as far as we know right now. And, and so, if anybody who is opposed and 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 doesn't really agree with what we're talking about and would want to come on and and have an, an open and fair discussion on this platform, which I think is a much better platform to try to have a detailed and thorough debate about this important issue than Twitter. Uh, I mean, I think clearly I have tried to stay away from getting too far into. It. I actually told Alex uh, Gibney that I was um, not going to waste my time having a discussion going over what, like, I said and what he said and what I think he said and what he thinks I said. I mean, we're not going to get anywhere. We're not going to do anything valuable by having this kind of exchange. So I decided to tell him that I wasn't going to waste his time and please don't waste mine. And uh, But if anybody wants to come on this show and, and have a serious discussion, we have used this program to address topics with seriousness and also sometimes with irreverence um, and uh, but talking about these things in ways that need to be discussed uh, so I just put that invitation out there to anyone who has just listened to you for the purpose of coming after you on Twitter um, over the next week here um, you know be more mature be more politically mature and 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 maybe try to reach out to us and connect and let's let's talk about this because we aren't we I'm not in favor of war crimes. I don't want massacres. I don't think that people should be dying in mass in any country. Um, but and also since we're on this topic, particularly Syria, and we would like to see an end. Um, but my feeling continues to be that I must insist that my country and my government, the U.S. government, not make it worse than it already is. And continue to funnel in weapons through the CIA or the Pentagon or any other organization and not use organizations like the USID, which I've known to have had destabilizing impacts in countries. I mean, this is the joke of an organization that <laughs> tried to do Cuban Twitter in Cuba and also like tried to support rap or hip hop groups that were against Fidel Castro. The group, or the, the, group, the group behind that, that the USAID contracted to do that is the same one that is behind the Syria campaign. 
Yeah, so um, it, I don't want it to make it worse, and I also don't want them bumbling around in other countries not understanding the cultures or communities of that country because it is quite clear that USAID is incapable. Even if you agree with regime change, I would put to you that there is no worse organization that could be leading oh, the effort. Here, here, here's a good example of how the USAID is terrible. In the 80s, when the um, U.S. was arming and funding the Mujahideen to, to fight the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan, um, USAID printed these lovely textbooks uh, and sent them to, um, a re- to send them to the refugee camps uh, in the border area of Pakistan, where a bunch of Afghans had fled for, for children. And these school textbooks um, are still in use today by the Taliban. And the reason for that is because the USAID literally like used these textbooks to indoctrinate an entire generation into jihad and hatred. Um, hatred, not just, I mean, hatred of the Soviet Union, yes, but also just hatred of minorities. Hey, I mean, Afghanistan was not a Wahhabi or Salafist society. Um, the Taliban kind of came about from this. Like it literally indoctrinated a whole generation. These textbooks were written by us. And I mean, can you just like imagine that like, it's like in, um, you know, in count like learning numbers and it, it would say things like my uncle has two guns, one gun, two gun to like do jihad <laughs> against, you know, well, no, like actually, we like, have a, we have a real world example. It's, it's Texas. And uh, and their their textbooks are gradually <laughs> incorporating more hate filled rhetoric and uh, and and viewing American history through a hate lens uh, every day. So we could just we could just imagine uh, giving Texas textbooks to people in Afghanistan. Yeah, and these textbooks were dramatically like were, I mean, these textbooks were dramatically worse. Like they led to the rise of the Taliban. Um, that That's kind of what happened. So, And even today, like people will tell you, U.S. officials will tell you, they've told me this before, that it was worth it because it got rid of the Soviets. And so the point is that the USAID is like an organ. I mean, it's, it's, not, it's relationship in the context, especially of the Middle East and the South and South Asia have been really nasty. So, yes, as Kevin was saying, these are not organizations that you should be like excusing or really trusting to do anything good. Um, and at the end of the day, I mean, you can disagree with my opinions. You can disagree with Kevin's opinions. You can disagree with Max's opinions. Uh, you can disagree with the facts we put forward. Fine. But I, at least at the very least ask that you have some level of like professionalism. And I'm not saying that like in the sense of like civility, like you can't, you know, because you know, in the way that like the Israelis would say, because they always make everything about civility to try and like silence debate. I want debate. I want more vibrant debate and more open debate, not this bullshit where it turns into character assassination and you're an Assadist and you're, uh, you know, paid by Putin and, you know, you support massacres. Like, enough with that. Enough. It doesn't help Syrians. It doesn't help Syrians. It doesn't help anybody in the region. All it does is silence debate. All right, with that, I think that's the perfect way to end our episode. So thanks, everyone, for listening. And hopefully we'll be back next week with another episode of the Unauthorized Disclosure Podcast.